Welcome to the Stony Plain Alliance Church Podcast. We are a community that is about discovering fullness of life for everyone by practicing the way of Jesus together. So this morning we are um, continuing the series on seeing Jesus in unseen places. And uh, throughout the series we've been sitting in the Old Testament, we've talked about people like Moses, Jonah, David, And today we're going to do something different. We're going to jump into the New Testament and go to a New Testament story where Jesus is unseen. And so uh, this is found in Acts 14. I'm going to read it. It's not going to be up on the screen. Just want you to hear, and then we'll go through it. In Lystra there sat a man who was lame. He'd been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him and saw that he had the faith to be healed and called out, stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted out in Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple is just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gate because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. When the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out in the crowd shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way. Yet he's not left himself without testimony. He's shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. And then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derbe. The word of the Lord. So that's a strange story, right? Like, what a weird moment. I know some of you, this is a life first, and you've got it tattooed on your arms. But for others of us, this is something that we've probably glossed over countless times. It's one of those, well, that's neat stories, and then you move on and go, well, what else can we get? So this book, or this comes from the book of Acts, and if you don't know the book of Acts, maybe you're unfamiliar with the New Testament. This is a a partner with the book of Luke. Luke is a, a gospel Uh, telling the story of Jesus, and then uh, Acts is the story of what happens to the early church after Jesus ascends to heaven and sends the Spirit. And the theme of Acts comes in Acts 1, 7-8, where it says, It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and all the ends of the earth. And this is an example of the ends of the earth. I've got a map here uh, to show where we're going to be at today. So uh, we're in Lyconia there, which is uh, number seven, just at the top there. And so this is Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey. They're going to the ends of the earth for the first time. They're leaving the familiar places. And this story is a unique story. Because what's happening here is the gospel is going for the first time to a place without a Jewish population, or at least a big enough Jewish population there's a synagogue. You see, Paul had this practice over and over again is when he'd go to a town, he'd go to the synagogue and start there. He'd tell people the good news of the kingdom. And why did he do this? 
because he's an apprentice of Jesus. We read in Luke 14 about Jesus. He went to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, into the synagogue as was his custom. Paul saw in Jesus somebody who'd go to the synagogue, and so Paul would go to the synagogue, and he'd start there and tell people about Jesus, and then the gospel would work out from there. And so in the last two places he'd been in, the city in Antioch, uh, up there, not to be confused with Antioch and Syria, and then in Iconium, Paul went, and he told people about Jesus, and the Gentiles received it in huge numbers, which created uh, controversy because the Jewish leaders didn't want that to happen, and also the Gentile leaders didn't want this to happen because it was affecting worship of their gods. And so in these last two places, they got run out of town. People tried to, to stone Paul and Barnabas. It didn't work. And so they ran the 30 kilometers from Iconium to Lyconia to start all over again. Which, if you're wondering, is the distance of, from here to West Edmonton Mall. So they've gone to Lystria, sorry, not Lyconia, to Lystra to preach the gospel here. And so let's start. I will go back through the text. It says, and this is starting in uh, verse 8 of chapter 14. In Lystra there sat a man who was lame. He'd been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. And Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, stand up on your feet. And at that the man jumped up and began to walk. So remember, Paul isn't uh, at this moment in the synagogue. Instead, Paul is in the middle of the town because there's no synagogue to go to. And as he's preaching about the good news of Jesus, you can actually put the text up here uh, about that so everyone can see. He's speaking about the good news of Jesus. He looks at somebody and sees that they have the faith to be healed, which I have no clue what that looks like, the faith to be healed. I don't know if there was some desperation in the man or hope or what it was, or maybe it's just... The Spirit was talking to Paul and saying, that guy, see him. I imagine it was probably something like that. This amazing story happens where this man who has been lame from birth is healed. He gets up and walks. Now, we read these texts over and over again. This isn't even the first time this has happened in Acts. Earlier in Acts, Paul, or sorry, Peter and John have healed a man who is also lame. He gets up, he jumps, he dances around. Everybody's in awe and wonder because it's in Jerusalem. And they're going, look at what God can do. Now we're in Gentile territory. There's a man lame from birth. Imagine everything that's involved in somebody being lame from birth standing up. His muscles haven't even had a chance to atrophy because they never developed. This man never walked in the first place. This man has never had the experience of pulling himself up on the, on the side table or the couch, wobbling around, taking a couple steps. There's no muscle memory here. I've often thought about the amazingness of these miracles from the outside perspective of what we see on our legs. The incredible, oh wow, look, like muscles must have formed and tendons must have all of a sudden gotten strong. And he got up and walked. Uh, I, I had the privilege over these last few months to spend some time with one of my friends who, whose son has cerebral palsy, as well as some other disabilities. And over the last number of years, the things that they've done through body movement to get him to learn how to use his body and to get muscle or uh, brain uh, pathways run 
to make his body work is incredible. On his second birthday, they celebrated because he could take both his hands and stick them over his head, which I did without thinking. For him, this was two years of hard work. The amount of work it takes for our brains to run things from place to place is incredible. So we think about a story where a guy's sitting down and he gets up and walks. We go, that's cool, amazing. But for someone to get up and walk for the first time, this is taking neural pathways, doing things they've never done before. And then he gets up and he walks. He doesn't stumble up and fall over like we'd expect. My wife Sam had a a stroke a number of years ago, and after that, uh, it took her weeks upon weeks to learn how to walk again, even though she knew how to walk before, and she had a walker, and she had to slowly move around. This miracle is incredible. He learns how to stand, to walk, to balance, all in a moment. And so how is it received while we continue? When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted out in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bowls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowds wanted to offer sacrifices to them. So remember, this is a mirror story of that time earlier in Jerusalem where everybody was in wonder and awe. In that story, God has worshipped their celebration. In this story, though, I think it's a little different. Our first clue is they shout out in Lyconian, which is an important thing. Barnabas and Paul don't understand this language. This would be a local dialect instead of Greek that would be spoken primarily. They're shouting out. Now, how do we interpret this? My first thought would be this is joy and celebration. Look, something amazing has happened. The gods have come and seen us. They're here. They're present. Question is, though, what are the Greek gods like? Are the Greek gods full of compassion and kindness like Yahweh? Or are they fickle and often angry and using people like pawns? What if their first response here isn't joy but instead terror? Oh no, the gods are here. What's going to happen to us? I was talking to, this story, to my daughter Lucy about this story, and uh, she was been reading Percy Jackson, and so there's all these stories about the Greek gods and goddesses in it. And as I was telling her about it, she's like, why did they think they were Zeus and Apollo? Or Zeus and Hermes, sorry. These are not the gods of healing. That's strange. Wouldn't they think it's Apollo or maybe Asepolis? They're the gods of healing and medicine. Why wouldn't they think it's them? Well, to understand this, we need to go back in time. Uh, man, or, uh, Tally, thank you, Tally. On the back, do you have a picture of a guy with a reef on his head? That's the guy, Ovid. Ovid is a first century poet. He wrote a story or a collection of poems called The Metamorphosis. And in these stories, he has, he's um, written down an account of a, um, something that happened in this region. A folk story that had gone from years and years passed down. And in the story, Zeus and Hermes come to a town. And they're disguised like ordinary peasants. So think back to Beauty and the Beast. In this, you, at the very beginning, you have the enchantress show up as an old woman and tries to get the beast to show her hospitality, but he thinks she's ugly, so he won't. And then so she, in turn, puts a, a curse on him and becomes a beast. We're all familiar with this part. 
Yes. So, in the same way, Zeus and Apollo show, or Zeus and Hermes show up in this region. And they're dressed up as ordinary peasants, and they're asking for a place to sleep for the night. They ask for hospitality, and over and over and over again, they're rejected by everybody in the city. Until they come to a poor couple named Bacchus and Philemon. Not the Philemon from the New Testament. And they're showing great hospitality. They're blessed. They're given wine. Everything is great. And so Zeus and Hermes say, hey, why don't we go for a hike? And as they go up on top of the mountain, they're told, don't turn back. But as they do, they turn back, and as they turn back, they see a great flood destroy the town that they had been in. The gods, not showing hospitality, decide to wipe everything out. And then they transform their house into an ornate temple to Zeus, and Philemon and Bacchus are placed as a priest and priests there. This is the story of this region about two fickle gods who show up, are not showing hospitality, and so they kill everybody. Paul comes into this region with Barnabas. And somebody gets healed. And their first response is, and I wonder what's going on here, or wonder, or joy. Their first response, I think, is terror. Oh no, the gods have shown up. Remember what happened last time Zeus and Hermes showed up? They killed us all. They wiped everybody out. So we've got to make sure that we honor them. And so they run and get the temple priest, the bulls, the wreaths, the sacrifice, because they're scared. We continue. But when the apostles Paul and Barnabas heard of this, they tore their clothes. And they rushed out to the crowd, shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all the nations go their own way. Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He's shown kindness to you by giving the rain from heaven and the crops in their season. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. So Paul and Barnabas are starting to put the pieces together. They're seeing the fear on people. They're seeing the bulls come in, the wreaths. They know what's about to happen. And so they tear their clothes, which is what a good Jewish person was supposed to do when blasphemy was happening. The interesting thing here, as an aside, is they don't use this to their advantage. They don't go, hey, they think we're somebody big. You know, like that moment in Star Wars when at Endor they see, the Ewok sees 3PO and Luke's like, hey, Pretend you're a god, I'm going to raise you up. They could have easily gone, hey, yeah, we are Zeus and Hermes. Now let us tell you about the god that we serve. They could have used this to their own advantage. But they don't. They don't say, hey, here's an opportunity to speak the gospel. They say, here's an opportunity to correct wrong thinking. They immediately try to clear up the situation. We're humans too, but we have good news. Now, Paul is someone who every town he goes to brings good news, and his good news looks a lot like this. The God of Moses and your forefathers, he became one of us. And then he died, and he rose again, and he's ascended, and one day he's going to return. But that's not the good news that he speaks here. Instead, the good news here is that there's a God 
who loves you, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, not the God of the water or the God of the storm or the God of messengers or the God of this, that, or the other thing. Instead, there's one God who is God over all things. And he shows you kindness. He brings you rain and crops, not based on your sacrifices, not based on what you've done to honor him, but just because that's who he is. And he provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. There's a God out there who's all-powerful, but he's not fickle. Instead, he's kind and compassionate. Paul doesn't jump to Jesus because before he gets to Jesus, he has to reframe their understanding of what a God is like. Because at the heart of this story is what do you believe God is like? Is he at his base like Zeus, angry, fickle, malevolent and unpredictable? Or at his heart is he gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, and rich in love? Paul can't begin with Jesus because he doesn't want Jesus to get confused with Zeus. He has to give them corrective lenses to change their view of God where in the synagogues, Paul can jump into the context of what Jesus has done. Here he can't. Because the context is entirely different. The context of who Paul is talking to and what's happening in that situation matters deeply. And so they clear up the air, but even then, the people are so scared, they're barely able to stop them from sacrificing to them. And then the story continues. It says, Then some Jews came up from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over, and they stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back in the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. It's a weird ending to the story, right? So remember at the beginning, I talked about how they were in these other cities, and each time they were chased off by a mob who had wanted to stone them. Well, finally, the mob sees an opportunity. They go, hey, everybody's terrified and scared, and we know how quickly we can turn somebody who's scared into somebody who's aggressive. And so they say, hey, look, they, they said your gods are worthless idols, or look at that, they tried to trick you, or whatever it is they did, and they said, let's get these guys. And so Paul gets stoned and dragged outside of the city, and they think he's dead, which I think is the miracle on the other side of the story, right? Our story started with a miracle. I think our story ends with a miracle. If somebody's stoned and left for dead, they're not getting up and walking back into the city, are they? And if a mob has stoned someone, they're pretty sure they know exactly what's happened to this guy. I wonder if this is a resurrection story. We read about a man who's dragged and left for dead, and then the body of disciples come and gather around him. I imagine when they gathered around, they probably prayed for him. And then we, Paul gets up, and he walks back. So whether he was resuscitated here, or whether, you know, everything that was broken just got fixed in that moment, some sort of miracle happens here. And Paul gets up and goes back to the city. And then they leave. This story is pretty amazing once we see some of these details, isn't it? And so what do we do with a weird story like this? Where do we see Jesus in unseen places? 
Well, first of all, I think Jesus is seen in the actions of his apprentices. Like I said at the beginning, Paul has the custom of going to the synagogues, just like Jesus did. Jesus healed people. Paul, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is healing people. Jesus' other disciples in that community get around Paul and heal him. Jesus is seen through the work of his people. His people want to clear the air when there's misunderstanding of who he is. Jesus is the God of clarity. Which I think has a lot to say to us. We are increasingly moving into a post-Christian society, or maybe we're just already there. Depends on who you ask. And so more and more, we're walking into places like Lystra. We're walking into places where maybe Jesus has been named, but they don't really know what he's like. Or you hear the word God, and as much as we, we think of a capital G God, they're thinking of a lower G God. And so there's confusion that can abound. And so we walk constantly in places where Jesus is unseen and unknown. And if we walk in and just assume people have the exact same understanding that we do, perhaps we could do damage. If we talk about Jesus being a God who is strong or something like that, but we don't clarify that Jesus is also a God of love and compassion, they start thinking of a Jesus who's a lot more like Zeus, who's angry and disappointed and upset. And so there's a lot of wisdom that's involved in speaking of Jesus differently. Because when we go to unseen places, we need to speak of Jesus differently. Jesus is constantly revealed in his body in this story, and he's constantly revealed in our world through his body as well. Through us. If we're wondering where Jesus is in unseen places, we just need to look at ourselves. He's put his spirit in us. He's called us his body. And he's constantly on the move and constantly inviting us to be people of good news alongside him. And so how do we speak with wisdom? Well, first of all, we need to understand that sometimes by sharing our faith, we might be misunderstood, and that's okay. Don't put too much pressure on that it has to be perfect. Paul was even misunderstood, and it got put in the scriptures for him to be reminded of forever. So it's okay. Second of all, the means by which we share our faith matters. Right? Paul and Barnabas didn't say we're Zeus and Hermes, and we're here to tell you about the God we love and serve. And so we've got to think about the way that we're sharing Jesus. Is it consistent with the heart and character of Jesus? Are we sharing Jesus through tactics that could be manipulative, mean-spirited, or anything like that? Because if so, that's not the way of Jesus. Or are we being gentle and compassionate? Are we moving in love first? So the way that we speak matters. And then second or third of all is we need to have Patience. This story is the second time this region is mentioned uh, in Acts. The first time comes in Acts 2. In Acts 2 at Pentecost, there's people from this area. That means potentially somebody's come back saying, hey, there's this guy named Jesus. And maybe that's all they know. Or maybe they might know a bit more. Then Paul comes back here, but he doesn't say, okay, now I've got to make sure now that I've told you this, I'm going to tell you everything else. Instead, he leaves. And he comes back, we don't know how many years later, and he comes and shares 
And somebody named Timothy comes out of that who just happens to be somebody who comes to share the gospel further and further as Paul's apprentice. Sharing the gospel with wisdom involves creativity and patience. We can't assume that every conversation is the only conversation that we're going to have, but instead that we're here to start a story or to continue a story. Maybe somebody's come and shared the gospel with them before or being a, a representative of Jesus in some way. And maybe our responsibility is just to clear up the air and somebody else is going to tell the final story. We don't need to put too much pressure on every conversation, but to remember that Jesus is using us to be people of good news. And then lastly, the context of where we share our faith shapes our faith. How will the good news look differently in Stony Plain than it does in other places? Or how will the good news look different in Stony Plain today than it did when you heard the good news in Stony Plain however many years ago? So get to know those around you. Without knowing them, how will you know what good news will be? And then the last question is this. What is your picture of Jesus like? Is your picture of Jesus a lot more like Zeus? Is he fickle and frustrated, needing to be appeased? Or is he distant? Is he apathetic towards you? Is he frustrated that he keeps having to forgive you for the exact same thing over and over and over again? Is he happy only when you behave the right way because he's concerned about behavior modification? Is he constantly aloof? For some of you, the good news today just is this. Jesus isn't like Zeus. Jesus isn't fickle. Jesus isn't aloof. Jesus isn't angry. Jesus isn't frustrated. Instead, Jesus is kind and compassionate. As Jesus describes himself in the book of Matthew, he talks about himself being gentle and lowly. We are not sinners in the hands of an angry God. Instead, we are in the hands of a loving God who calls us saints. And so you might need to change your glasses because Jesus is kinder than you know. He constantly reveals the God who's kind and compassionate over and over again. We see him moving in kindness towards others instead of judgment. In fact, the only time he's harsh in the Gospels is with the Pharisees, where they're giving an incorrect view of who he is, and he's got something to clear up, like where they talk about God's being more concerned about the cleaning the outside of the cup, or God being more concerned about tithing on herbs instead of showing mercy and compassion. That's when Jesus gets worked up. Or when people are concerned about Sabbath rules. And like, oh, you can't do good on the Sabbath, you can't heal. Jesus gets worked up in those moments. Constantly, and the rest of the time, though, he is a God of mercy. I like to think about the gentleness that he shows when he raises that little girl from the dead. He takes her parents in and a few disciples. He doesn't want to make a big scene. He doesn't want to make this a big ordeal. And then he gently comes to the side of the girl's bed and wakes her up as from just a deep sleep. He says, little girl, get up. Or the compassion he shows to the woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. He's not like, 
Why did you touch me? How could you do this? Now I'm unclean or anything like that. He's not concerned about ritual law in that moment. Instead, he's just so gentle and compassionate. Our God is a God of unmerited kindness. And every week when we come to the table, we come to a table of unmerited kindness. The table of mercy to be reminded. And so if you forgot your communion elements like I did, so I'm going to go over here and get some. Uh, there's some on the table here. or just chair right there. Uh, you can go to the tables and get them there. And if you remembered them, unlike me, you'll have them ready to go. But every week we come back to the table. And we come back to remember that our story doesn't begin with fear. Our story doesn't come with an angry God who wants to wipe us out. Instead, our story comes from a God who became one of us, not to trick us, not to do wrong to us, not to do harm to us, but a God who became one of us to show us the way to live, to teach us how to walk in his ways. And then from there, he took on all of our suffering, all of our pain, and he died in our place. But he didn't stay dead, of course. He rose again in the greatest act of kindness, kick-starting creation all over again, and he ascended to heaven. He sits on the right hand of the Father, and in that seat is a seat of kindness and mercy, where he's praying for you, where he's talking to the Father about you, where he's delighting in you, because he really loves you, and he's full of kindness. And so every week, when we take the elements, we remember the gospel. Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ is reigning, and Christ will come again. This is the good news. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. Let's break it together. And he took the cup. And he gave it to his disciples. He said, this is my blood shed for you. Like the bread was my body broken for you. Drink this in remembrance of him. So let's drink in remembrance of him. Jesus, thank you that we can come to the table. We don't have to come afraid. But instead we come based on your broken body, your shed blood, to a table of mercy, to a table of kindness. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you are for us, that you are on our side. Pray that you teach us more and more about what it means to be people of kindness and mercy and compassion in return. Would you change us from the inside out? Amen. Thank you for tuning into our podcast today. To discover more about Stony Plain Alliance Church and its ministries, visit our website at spaconline.com. Grace and peace.